Hi guys, thanks for stopping by our Sats today. Today we're continuing our discussion of a couple articles from MTO that we looked at. We've got Livy. Hello. And we've got Adam. Hello. And I'm Seth. So we're talking about Dr. Jennifer Beaver's Beyond Mere Novelty. She's looking at the music of Maurice Ravel. I'm the one that was tasked with the major note taking for it but before we get into my thoughts Livy Adam did you guys have any thoughts on it on this article yeah um I thought it was cool I liked it I'm a big fan I liked it too um this this article the Ravel and the next one that we're gonna do on plateau loops though it like it starts getting into narrative and I'm like I I it's not my wheelhouse <laughs> um, but just like, I, I hate this. I don't hate it. It's just that I have very little it's point dumb. of reference. Maybe even less than jazz, if I'm being honest. They're um, just making things up. It's just subjective garbage. Well, that kind of gets into something that <laughs> I wrote down. I don't know if this is a before we talk about it note or after, but I'll just go ahead and put it out there. So my, my notes, I have very few. It starts with overall. Sure, I buy it. That's my first take. Is like I'm in. I I I believe that Tambor is like uh, she makes a good case for it being um, how would you describe it? Like central to the narrative of this piece. Um, so just I I hate to cut you off because I do want to let you think. No, it's okay. Or finish. But what started to get to me the further I got into it was how would I describe Tambor? What yeah. is that? <laughs> it's just like an element. Like, it's just like a musical element. I don't know. But, and, and that's what I actually started to appreciate about this article. But I'll let you finish your thought. No, it's okay. Um, so, I first thought was like, okay, I'm sold. Um, generally not super familiar with most of the theories that she was naming. So, like, I couldn't focus as much about how her argument fit in with those and kind of the specifics of the theories she was incorporating but what I ended up thinking about more um, it just got me thinking about like timbre how we incorporate that into different approaches of analysis so here she's going more narrative but it made me thinking it made me think like could we say that timbre is like concrete objective enough to start defining like take a purely formal analysis like your form class um can we say that timbre is like objective enough to start defining formal sections with it if you're not going a narrative approach just like purely formal Mm -hmm. or is it a little too subjective like what do we kind of like what seth just said what do we define as timbre like does it relate with other elements if you're going to be objective about it or is there something that is unique to just the concept of timbre that we could define and we could use it in a purely formal analysis that's where my mind went because the narrative thing uh i'm not as familiar with so i was like how could i apply this to stuff that i use more and i went kind of like in form class i was thinking about it yeah that's what i alluded to at the very beginning of last episode was Mm -hmm. it feels like she's elevating timbre to like a certain structural place that it's just unusual for timbre to be placed mm-hmm. in to be valued in to yeah seen it seen and analyzed that yeah 
I like the way that Seth put it, which is like, how do we define timbre? I think that is like a kind of central point to my thought on it that I hadn't put into words, but like, how do we define it? How do we make it objective? Which she does, I mean, she does a few things in this article. It's just in general, you know, that's what I was thinking about. I thought the comparison between the German Klangfarben melody and mm-hmm. like what Ravel was doing with timbre, like I thought that I hadn't really thought about that overlap before because mm-hmm. um, they don't sound anything alike. But yeah, I, both approaches are, are very concerned with timbre. So you see how they're related when you look at them like that. Yeah. Well, and I think like both of the, whether it's the Klangfarben melody or what we were talking about in the last episode um, with Wayne Shorter is that it gets to our understanding of whatever it is, whether it's the melody, the pitch, the tonic, all of that has to evolve in some sense to the next phase. But if we try to hold on to, well, this is what it was 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 120 years ago, that that's not going to fit into what it actually is. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I get what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... I mean, did you guys have any other comments? Or I feel like we will return to most of those. Yeah. That was my only comment. Oh, okay. So, um, while Levy has brought up that there is some narrativity to the article, um, having looked at a fair amount of narrative stuff, I would say that generally it's light on that side of things. I would say, topic-wise, it is. And... If you would like to get into more of her specific analysis about each of the individual sections of the piano concerto, um, I highly recommend reading it. It was an enjoyable article. I would say probably about the first half, she's setting up some background material to get to the actual analysis point. So Mm -hmm. if you're not interested as much in the background, you may need to just skip forward to the analysis part. But um, I think some important things to know are when I went through the bibliography, a lot of the sources that she's looking for or using are topic related, whether it was, um, oh, let me look at the report. Like you have um, Mirka and the Oxford Handbook on Topic Theory. You have Hatton. You have... uh, Agawu, I hope I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, which is playing with signs a semiotic interpretation of classical music. There's lots of um, incorporating that sign theory. Also, Adam, I apologize because I was just shuffling papers while I <laughs> said all those things. No, it gives it a very grounded sound. It's very good for yeah. the, for the room. <laughs> um, but to me. It, the issue with topics is, and this is um, a problem that Tarasti describes in the first pages of his book, um, A Theory of Musical Semiotics, which is, as we're constantly evolving as a society, how do we expect everybody to maintain the same cultural values as well as be responsible for every cultural value that has ever happened before? <laughs> and so that... If we're thinking about that, 
it it does seem a little ridiculous to expect people to have all of this knowledge of information that they used to have and you can kind of think about the concept of whether you've had a grandparent or a parent that has well the music back in my day was great you know or like you're listening to something where they play a new song and you're like i don't know what this is and it's you know from when they grew up and they're like oh how can you not know this song and it's because to them you are supposed to know that knowledge they know it but they wouldn't understand that you as growing up in a different generation in time you can't possibly go learn all information that they already had you can learn some of it but you can't learn all of it and so of course there's going to be gaps in knowledge so all that to say topics a lot of times rely on some of those you're supposed to have this information and that gets a little bit into who are we writing the article for? Are we writing it about and for the intended listener of that time? Are we writing it about how we listen and perceive it now? Are we writing about how did um, Ravel write this concerto? Because it's his piano concerto in G major. I think we talked a long, long time ago, like maybe one of the early episodes of the podcast about isotopies, about how like in both narrative theory and in the the analysis of Shanker, the idea of the ideal listener comes to the forefront yeah, we of did. like you only get it if you get it and that's present in both narrative and in Shanker, where Shanker says it from like a very elitist sort of way um but narrative is more just like addressing some people get it and some people don't mm-hmm. well and that's where i think livy's right on some analysis that are narrative becomes objective because okay if you heard that great i don't know how to respond to you or how to debate with you about that point because to me it just sounds like yeah sure Mm -hmm. yeah Um, but i thought the goal that she started to have was to describe how something sounds you kind of end up needing topics Mm -hmm. not necessarily because it needs to take on another level of meaning which is sort of what hatton and ratner who did topics back in the 80s i believe i think Mm -hmm. it was 1980 um the and um agawu they're saying that there's meaning attached to all of those things and for the right listener kind of like we've been saying you do have that but the way she was using it is i don't have a true way to describe this sound how can i do this successfully and then that's when she brings in certain things like it sounds like an out of tune carnival piano Mm -hmm. she's not doing it to try to say imagine this narrative where first you're at the carnival with an out-of-tune piano and then all these things happen. She's just saying, this is the first timbre, the first sound that you actually hear. And so that's the only way that I really have to describe it because just telling you you've got an F-sharp against a G and some other notes that are clashing against each other doesn't fully describe what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. that was one thing that i enjoyed was her treatment of topics and that 
we started to get to that place of let's use them and not rely on them to fulfill a narrative necessarily. But I shot her an email and I haven't heard back from her. Who knows if I hear back from her? It'd be cool if I did. But the question was, you know, I really enjoyed the use of um, timbre and how you incorporated topics because sometimes I have issues with cultural values attached to them. But why wouldn't, you know, you use something like Tarasti's Isotopies, which we have a podcast way back up on, like, on it. I don't recommend, I haven't listened to it in a hot minute. I'm pretty sure I don't recommend going back and listening to it. <laughs> Just kind of get the gist of what we're talking about now. Also, that was three years ago, I think. And my position on them has evolved significantly. So, mm-hmm. uh, but anywho, Isotopies, what Tarasti was trying to get at with them was the idea of, okay, what is there a syntactic form to some of our semiotics that we could take so that like timbre of okay what does this sound like how would you describe it and kind of what she does and some of her examples on the form because one of her debates is is it really following that concerto form that we would expect it's titled that way Mm -hmm. and it's suggesting that especially as a neoclassical kind of time I wouldn't classify this piece as neoclassical, but that was around that the 1920s, 1930s. This came out in the 1930s, I believe. Um, and so that's kind of what it's referencing, but kind of like we've talked about in other articles, that like you have to adjust your expectations so that if you're stuck thinking this is Mozart's concerto, it's not going to fit that mold. But I thought her point about the different completely changing sounds of the orchestra and the soloist, that does seem to set the form more than, oh, we've changed themes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you guys have anything to add? I can, I can keep talking. I just felt like I was rambling in some ways. I mean, she mentions Bolero, but she doesn't really get go deep into Bolero. But wouldn't Bolero be like a really, really obvious example of this, where he just repeats the same thing over and over again, and then like the timbre becomes the form as like different voices do it? Yeah, like it's not to all me, the way to it's not all the way to variation, but like the things that are changing are the other voices. Yeah, to me, and uh, she kind of she gets to this at some point that she felt like Ravel was referencing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. But to me, when I listened to it, and I listened to it, I think twice, it may have been three times, but definitely twice. I was just like, especially some parts are eerily similar to Mm -hmm. Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. But Mm -hmm. it was one of those, even how like drastic changes in timbre, you're like, oh, this is a completely different section. And I mean, I think her argument of the change in timbre creates a change in form and that's defining the structure more than, because I will say I wasn't necessarily focused on a, here's this melody, what comes next? It was more, you know, to use a Hatton term, it was 
these marked like places of here's the change you know and so that did seem to dictate form more than anything else the other concerto that he did around the same time the concerto for the left hand is also very gershwin and jazz inspired yeah Uh, which i think is a funny story because the guy he wrote it for hated jazz well and you know i think in some ways it it kind of gets into the as composers were pushing the bounds of what can i do in this mold that you start to get those sounds and i guess kind of what i was thinking when we were going through livy's article the difference between serialism and jazz is not as far as one would think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say there's probably some place for the same statement on blues and just an odd harmony with a ninth on top of it. Like, it's not that far away. Like colorful chords. Yeah. Right. And even when you're getting away from tertiary chords to just like yeah here's this collection of notes and you get more of like the same shape of notes again Mm -hmm. and again and then you can get more of like a planing effect like you would in Debussy Mm -hmm. yeah let's see is there anything else that I'm leaving out I think I think that was the main thing um, was I was I liked her use of topics to better define the timbre because I don't know how you would if you didn't do that and kind of like I was saying in the previous episode you, like I understand music theory and I got I kind of knew the notes that the jazz music theorists uh Blaise was talking about I said it correctly that time right (laughs) yeah so I like I understood the notes she was talking about but to really understand the sound of what that was like I need more development as a jazz music theorist to fully understand those ideas because I can understand what major minor augmented diminished sound like but once you start to get into all these extended chords and even yeah, I've got two fourths stacked on top of each other. Like, that's an odder sound to me, and I can't perfectly picture this is what it sounds like. The same way that if she told me, here's all the notes that are being played throughout the orchestra and Ravel's piece, I would just go, okay, I agree with you. But if she describes it as, you know, it sounds like an out-of-tune carnival piano... I have a clearer idea of what that sounds like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard for me to put it into words, but I think you're right where it's like, it's hard to make that argument without topics. Well, and I, I think that maybe that's an identification of a niche that could be developed, but, you know, it would be... It would be a hard thing to do, and I think it would be a hard thing to just try to write a book and, like, okay, here's how we're going to talk about timbre from now on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's... Even though that's a good way 
or it's a necessary way to analyze it is with topics. It's still kind of going back to my initial thing. It's still in the realm of subjective. Even though it's helpful, it's not super systematic. Well, and I would agree, but I think what I was fine with was um, she wasn't using it to concoct some grand narrative and say make some declaration at the end of it of like we hear the sadness you Mm -hmm. know from Ravel's heart based on the unfolding of these topics Mm -hmm. it was just trying to describe the sound and I think I I think I was okay with that yeah I think to her end it was used really well um it wasn't too subjective. I guess maybe it's just to use those in a different type of analysis would be difficult. But for hers, for her purposes, it worked well. It was just like establishing um, like boundaries, kind of like, or just a label. It was like a way of labeling that. Yeah. That worked and, well. Yeah, and I think. Uh, there's a Klein article about Chopin's Fourth Ballade, I believe, where he outlines a similar thing using topics, and he's saying, like, here's our lyric section, here's, he, he identifies all these different topics, mm-hmm. and while I kind of agree with him, I would say that if you went and listened to the Chopin piece, and then you went and listened to this Ravel concerto in G major, that you would you would hear and understand the different topics going on better in Ravel than you would in Chopin. Gotcha. I can imagine that. Now I'm I'm not disagreeing with Klein and saying that they aren't present. I just I like her use of it to say like here we can redefine what the structure of it of this piece based on this because it is so clearly different timbres that mm-hmm. occur yeah i i haven't you know read that article or uh i'm not off the top of my head sure what the chopin piece is but just generally speaking i can certainly see how it's a clearer definition of or what's the right word like less nuanced maybe yeah in this piece because in this piece it is clear um like i i don't think i listened to the entire concerto uh, when i was looking at this article but i listened to some of it and the parts i listened to i was like oh yeah i buy it like that seems like a clear definition to me but in yeah. Chopin, I can imagine sitting down and being like, oh, okay, like, maybe that sounds definitive, but I don't, I probably wouldn't have picked it out. So it's kind of going more in the subjective realm. But I think here, like, I buy it. Yeah. Adam, did you have any final thoughts? I like the bit about the theremin. I thought that was cool. Yeah. I like the piano trills turn into a theremin or like a musical saw. I like that. Theremins are just yeah. cool. 
All right, so wrapping up um, a little bit about Dr. Jennifer Beavers. Uh, she's a music theorist who specializes in early 20th century music analysis and music theory pedagogy. Her primary research centers on the music of Maurice Ravel, in which she brings established modes of formal and harmonic analysis together with timbre analysis, orchestration theory, neurology, and disability studies. Through analysis, she shows how Ravel's approach to composition after the First World War began to integrate certain contemporary techniques, such as austere textures, jazz, bipolarity, sorry, bipolytonality, exposed dissonance, and advanced orchestration techniques while maintaining many of his classical debuts, particularly his penchant for sonata form and functional bass lines. Her work reveals changes in Ravel's compositional process that not only define artistic priorities of the inner war period, but also reveal the change that might be related to his degenerative brain disease. I thought, I thought it was interesting because I read the article first and then I went and read her bio on the University of Texas San Antonio's website. And I was like, oh, yeah, oh, this that is where she's right at? up her alley. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I assume that's, yeah, UTSA. Seems right. (laughs) Well, cool. All right. Thanks for stopping by, guys. Um, We'll see you next time uh, when we're talking about... Oh, where'd my paper go? We'll see you next time when we're talking about Ben Dunker's Plateau Loops and Hybrid Tonic.